All right, let's take our Bibles out. And we're going to turn to the book of First Thessalonians, chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 2. He says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. When I went off to Bible college and began to get to know students and professors alike, and uh, I remember at one point thinking, you know what, if I get out of Bible college and the only thing that happens to me is that some of these men that I've sat under for four years rubs off on me, it will have been well worth it. They were great men of God, very learned and committed to understanding and applying the Word of God to their lives and to helping other people to do the same. If I can just imitate that, I will do well. The reason I share that with you this morning is because that's really what's happening in the book of First Thessalonians. In the passage that we read right there, it talks about them being imitators, but then being examples. In all of life, you're born into this world knowing nothing and not how to accomplish anything either. And that's going to change. And as you grow up through life, you begin to absorb from other people. You hear teaching and you watch examples that are in front of you. And children learn from their parents. And then they go off to school and they learn from teachers. And they learn from coaches. And you learn from a large variety of people that are in your life. But you know, the way it works is at the beginning, we just kind of imitate. We see people doing something and we do just that. I remember that's how I learned how to snow ski. The first time we went snow skiing was with a youth group down in uh, southern Minnesota. And we went to a ski lift and a resort on a winter weekend retreat with our youth group. And and we'd never been skiing before. And we went up the bunny hill and took us quite a while to get down the bunny hill. It was a little steeper than the one we usually take our youth to. At least it felt like it to me. And... um, it took us quite a while and we thought, boy, this, this isn't working. I don't know what to do here. And, we, and then we noticed that they were going to start a beginning ski class. And they had everybody kind of circled up. So we kind of shuffled over to that and we got in on the ski class and they started teaching you how to get up when you fall down and that kind of stuff. And about that time, a friend of mine, well, Mark Young, who we just prayed for a little bit ago, uh, he came skiing by with a couple other guys headed for the chairlift. And I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to go follow them. And so I, I, I tagged along with them and I followed them, got on the, I watched what the first couple of them did getting on the ski lift. And so then when it was my turn, I got positioned right and I got on the ski lift, went up the hill and I, and I followed them over, talked them into going down the bunny hill. They weren't itching to go down the bunny hill. They were much better skiers, but they did it for me. And when they got off the lift, I was just, I was behind Mark and I saw what he did, kind of how he shifted his weight and I just did what he did and followed him down the hill and I made it down the hill successfully just by imitating, copying what I saw him doing. Well, that's what the Thessalonians were doing. 
And so not only when it comes to skiing and things like that, but in spiritual things too. We learn lessons from our parents and we learn lessons at Sunday school and we learn lessons at church and we, we start to learn how to relate to God. Well, the Apostle Paul had been through the area and planted the church in Thessalonica and led these people to Christ. And then they led others to Christ and the church was growing. And very quickly, they went from being imitators to being examples. They started out, like we all do, started out as the one imitating other people. But before long, they were the example that other people were following. We never really get totally out of that imitating time because there's always good examples for us to follow. But the fact of the matter is, is we all should grow to the point to where we are somebody worth following. That other people that are coming behind us can see in our life things that are valuable and begin to imitate us and practice those things as well. Well, in 1 Thessalonians here, in verses 6 and 7, notice that he said, You have become imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia. First Thessalonians is a very encouraging letter. This is a group of people that came to Christ. Their life changed. They started living for Christ. Changed the different things that they were doing. That got rid of the sins that they were participating in. These are people that are growing in their relationship with Christ in a dramatic way. And the Apostle Paul is saying, I get so excited when I think about you guys in prayer. Is that how this starts? And so he's encouraging them and saying, you imitated us, you looked at the good examples that were around you, and you followed those examples, and now you have become an example for other people in such a short amount of time. In the next chapter, he's going to mention it again in chapter 2 and verse 14. He says, you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So these people, when they first came to Christ, they were in a place that Christianity was being persecuted. There was a price to be paid for putting your faith in Christ. You know what they did? They looked at the example that they knew of, which was the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem who were being persecuted for their faith. And they learned that from, from their example that the way to deal with persecution is to stand up under it. To grow stronger in your faith, be willing to pay the price, be devoted to Christ. They became imitators, not only of the Apostle Paul, which he already mentioned in chapter 1, but they became imitators of the church in Jerusalem that had grown under suffering as well. And now the Thessalonian church is growing under that same kind of suffering. Throughout the New Testament, it constantly encourages us to be both of those things. It encourages us in many places to imitate people that have grown to a greater plane of spiritual understanding than we have and to let that grow us in our relationship with Christ. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 7-9, through 9, he would write to the same group of people at another time, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. He also tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, he says, I urge you then, be imitators of Me. Later in the same book, he would say, be imitators of Me as I am of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 12, So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators 
of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Regularly through the New Testament, it tells us, look, we need to imitate what we see in God. We need to imitate what we see in Christ. We need to imitate what we see through the apostles because they are imitating Christ. And so we get a good picture of what that means. He would tell the Hebrews, you need to imitate other people who through faith and patience have endured some of the same things that you're enduring. Gain from their strength. Imitate them. And then as we imitate them, it builds us to the place where we can be an example. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. It says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. First Peter 5.3, you tell the elders, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So you see, every one of us in our life, we need to be both of those roles. We should be always looking toward people ahead of us that we could consider to be mentors. We learn lessons from watching how they flesh out their faith. But then, you know, as we do that, we need to recognize that as we grow in our faith, then we become examples to others who are following behind. We need to be that shining light in their life. We need to be that encouragement as we do that thing, as we strive to go from imitator to example. We're going to recognize, first of all, four pillars of the Christian life that they were good in. The pillars, in other words, the supports of the Christian life. These are kind of part of the foundation level of what it means to be a Christian. And he starts off right off the bat in chapter 1 by encouraging them in these areas. The first pillar that he shares with them of the Christian life is the pillar of faith. In fact, I'm just going to put uh, several of them up right off the bat to begin with uh, because they're common throughout Scripture, especially in the Apostle Paul's writing. But he's going to point to the pillar of faith, the pillar of love, and the pillar of hope. These three things are often grouped together in the Apostle Paul's teaching. In fact, notice with me right here in the book of 1 Thessalonians. In chapter 1 and verse 3, he says, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, this is what I see in you. He says, I see these three things. And he's going to focus on another one a little bit farther into the book. But right now, let's just focus on these three. He says, there's faith, love, and hope. The Apostle Paul is in a place where he would like to go see them, but he's not able to at this time. And so what he does is partway through the book is he mentions sending Timothy. He got tired of waiting, trying to find an opportunity to get to them, sent Timothy on ahead to go see him, and Timothy had returned to him with a report. Well, in chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, he says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. And notice what the criteria is. The Apostle Paul says, I've heard from Timothy that you're doing great in your faith and in your love. But it's interesting that he leaves off, he mentions faith and love, but he leaves off hope. Now the reason that's interesting is because when you get into the next chapter, he's going to give them some information. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant about something. And he's going to teach them more more detail about the return of Christ, which affects our hope. And so he's going to give them more instruction concerning their hope. So he started off at the beginning saying, your faith, your hope, your love, you're solid. When he mentions a report from Timothy, he mentions faith and love again. And then he's going to 
encourage them, instruct them concerning their hope. And then right toward the end of the book, in chapter 5, verse 8, he says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And so the Apostle Paul begins his letter encouraging them for their faith, hope, and love. He ends the letter strengthening them in their faith, hope, and love. And these aren't all the places that these are listed. This is just a sample. But in the middle, he says, Timothy got back or the poor talked about your faith and your love and how great you're doing. And let me encourage you a little bit about that hope. All the way through the book, the Apostle Paul is pointing to these three pillars. Well, it's not uncommon, as I mentioned, for him. In fact, in over half of his books, he uses these three things to evaluate people in their walk with Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 13, it's probably the most popular one, he says, And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6, it says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, he says, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, there's others, but we frankly don't have enough time to go through all of them. But you see the point. The Apostle Paul uses faith, hope, and love to evaluate churches, to evaluate individuals in their Christian growth. And so when we consider that this morning, what are the, what are the pillars of the Christian life? The pillars of the Christian life are of these three, faith, hope, and love. Now, into the middle of the letter, he begins to focus pretty heavily on one more pillar, and that is the characteristic of holiness. If we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 10, he says, You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct before you believers. And they're very synonymous. Righteous, blameless, holiness. Holiness means to be separate from sin. It's the nature of God. Passages in the Bible teach us that God is holy, and so therefore we are to be holy. The Apostle Paul at this point in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 10, remember he's, he's already told them they're imitating him and they're imitating the other churches in Jerusalem. And he says, what was their example? What was the Apostle's example to these people? And the characteristic that he points out is that personal holiness. You are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. This was our conduct before you so that you could imitate that and implement that in your life. And so God wants faith, hope, love, and holiness to be a part of our life. focuses on it more as we get into chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. It says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. gets into chapter 4, verses 3-8, through still focusing on it. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, the word sanctification is very closely related to the word holiness. The word sanctification means to be set apart for God. And the word holiness pretty much means the same thing. It means distinct, set apart, and, um, and separate from sin. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, 
that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit. So as we look within this passage, God gives us the holiness as one of those pillars. He alludes to it with the Apostle's example. He says, look, we lived a life of holiness before you so that you would have it to imitate. That's what they're praying for them, that God would establish them in that holiness. He says, this is the will of God in your life. Holiness. God is holy. You need to be holy. He strengthens it by saying, you know what? God's not going to take this lightly. God is the avenger. He will avenge sin. Holiness is not an option. It is crucial to the Christian life. And then he ends with this statement, and he says, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. And so, obviously, he puts a lot of emphasis on personal holiness. Our duty to live separate from sin. In fact, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the wedding yesterday. In fact, all the weddings we did this summer. They all contain a part where it says, forsaking all others. You know, where you'll cleave to your Husband and wife, be joined to your husband and wife, forsaking all others. In fact, one of the verses that we read in uh, Ethan and Tiffany's wedding yesterday talked about hating what is evil, clinging to what is good. That's what our relationship with God is like. We can't cling to a holy God and hold on to our sin at the same time. It's like oil and water. They don't, they don't mix. God is never okay with our sin. God is never just overlooking our sin. And that's the point that he's making through this part of the book of 1 Thessalonians, is that we're called to personal holiness because we're called to be imitators of God. And God is the avenger against all such things. And and so that personal holiness is an important part of our Christian life. Now, how did these guys get so good at it so quick? Right, We see the things that they're commended for. They're commended for their faith. They're commended for their love. They're commended for their hope. He says, you guys are doing good in these things. You're commended for their holiness. These guys were growing in their personal holiness. They were shedding the, the sins uh, and getting rid of those out of their lives. How, how did they get good at it so quickly? You know, when somebody excels quickly at something, it, it, it catches our attention. And that's exactly what's happening in the book of First Thessalonians. These people are growing so dynamically in their faith that it catches Paul's attention and he's just loving it. Well, as we read through the book of First Thessalonians, there are several places in there where you get an indication of what led to this growth. How come they're growing so much faster than maybe somebody else? And so as we look at that, we're going to look at the steps, then four steps to this productive Christian life. Now, the first step that we see in this production, productive Christian life is that they took the gospel very seriously. What is the gospel? The gospel that is, is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that He was buried, and that He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures, that He laid down His life for us, paying for our sins, thus delivering us out from under our sins, providing the forgiveness for us. Well, in 1 Thessalonians 
chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, it says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our Gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. The Gospel came to Him not only in word. Now, the Gospel has to come in word because it's through words that the Gospel is preached. God has declared it to be that way. But the Apostle Paul said, you know what? When the Gospel was preached to you guys, your lives changed. He's saying it didn't come to you just in word. It wasn't left just in word. In other words, it wasn't just somebody saying, yeah, I believe that. He said, you said you believe it, and you know what? We can see it in your life because of all the change that's taken place. It came to you in power. Why? Because of the Holy Spirit that's involved in it. He would say, we know that God has chosen you. There's no question in our mind. So part of this is obviously divine. God has chosen them, and that's why this has happened. This is why the, the gospel has come to them in power. But there's also there's a divine side and there's a human side. You know what is they took the gospel very seriously. We know it because when they heard it and they recognized that Christ died for their sins, they died to their sins. Right? Remember that's the picture of the gospel. We've talked about it not long ago at some baptisms that we went through. And our baptism shows Christ dying on and being buried and then rising again from the dead, and how that's a statement of how we are now dead to our sins and we're alive to God. Well, in the Thessalonian church, when they heard the gospel and that message and they accepted that message, they put their faith in it. Like I said, Christ died for their sins, they died to their sins, and they began to really grow in this faith and hope and love and holiness. Well, not only did they take the gospel seriously in in believing it, but they also took the gospel seriously in spreading it. Because he goes on from there and you get to verse 8 and he says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. The Apostle Paul says, you know what? You guys are out there preaching the gospel, sharing sharing your faith so much that he says, I don't even really have to share the gospel everywhere I go because you guys have already done it. And so these guys were aggressive at believing the gospel, putting it into work in their life, and and aggressive at sharing the gospel with other people as well. And so they took the gospel seriously. made a big difference in their life. Not only did they take the gospel seriously, but they took sin seriously. Chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Notice it says, "...for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven. You know, that had to be tough for him. When you stop and think about it, you put yourself in their context. Because you're talking about people that have grown up in a context, right? They've grown up in a culture. These people were born, grew up, and lived in that pagan system of worship. And so, what's it going to be like for them? What's it going to be like for them when they stop going to the temple with their family? The temple of Aphrodite or one of these other gods? It's going to rock the boat in their family, isn't it? It's going to rock the boat in the lives of their friends, their co-workers. And their... In their society, they weren't born in a Christian nation. In their society, the pagan gods ruled the world. And the Christians you beat up on because they didn't follow you to the temple to worship the pagan gods. These people, to change their life, would pay a price for that. And they paid that price willingly. And so that's somebody that took their sin seriously. You know, Jesus taught us, He says, if, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. Better to go into heaven with one hand than to go into hell with both of them. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. Better to go into heaven with one eye than to go into hell with both of them. 
You see, we have to be decisive with sin. They were decisive with sin. They stopped worshiping the false gods. They turned from idols to worship the living God. So they took their sin seriously. Also, they took the Word of God seriously. I love in our men's Bible study a while back, we were focusing on that quite a bit as Jim was leading us through it. That nobody's going to grow very far in their faith without taking the Word of God seriously was his main point, and he's absolutely correct. The Apostle Paul tells that in 1 Thessalonians here in verse 13. He says, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. But as he preached the Word of God to them and everything, they took it for what it was. They recognized that this is not just some guy's opinion. I remember hearing another pastor one time, I was discussing, uh, discussing a, a subject of cultural relevance in our culture at the time, about oh, ten years ago. And they, and they read a passage of the Bible and they said, now what do you think of the Apostle Paul's 2,000-year-old opinion? Unfortunately, it's a shame to say that that person was a pastor of a church because when we read this book, this is not the Apostle Paul's 2,000-year-old opinion. The day that he wrote it was not Paul's one-day-old opinion. It is the Word of God. And that's what the Apostle Paul is telling him. He says, look, you guys were able to excel so quickly in your faith and imitate so well. Why? Because you took the Word of God seriously. You recognized it for what it was. You recognized it as the Word of God and not the words of man. That's why he said, as we already read in in chapter 4, verse 8, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives you His Holy Spirit. And so they took seriously the Word of God. And then lastly, lastly, they took seriously the return of Christ. They took the return of Christ seriously. They're an interesting church. They really did take the, the return of Christ seriously. These are people that they were so ready for Christ to come that some of them were ready to quit their jobs quit their jobs and just be, be, be looking, be, be watching for Him. Be ready when He comes. And the Apostle Paul says, no, 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 no. He says, that's why we, we worked and we worked hard while we were with you to give you an example. Stay at work. Keep working. You need to keep doing that. When it comes to the return of Christ, they had some confusion. When we get to chapter 4, we're going to learn more about it. They were confused with, well, we're supposed to be waiting for Christ's return. He's not here yet. A couple family members maybe have died in the church. What happens to them? And so they're confused about that and they're, they're struggling. And the Apostle Paul spends a good part of chapter 4 and into chapter 5 talking to them about the return of Christ and explaining things deeper so that they can have a better understanding of what's going to happen when that comes. Why? It's because the return of Christ is great motivation for our life. You know, some of the decisions that I've made in my life about what things I want to participate on have come from this question. I say, well, is this what I want to be doing when Christ comes back? That can go a long way <laughs> to, to influence you on what behaviors you want to be participating in and not participating in or what attitudes you want to be caught in when He comes back. And that is great motivation for our life. We, we got a glimpse of that a little bit back in chapter 1. Verses 9 and 10 says, For they themselves report concerning us of the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so these people, part of the reason, why did they take the Gospel so seriously? Because they knew Christ was coming back. They better go spread the Gospel to everybody that's around us so they have an opportunity to believe so that they can be saved before the wrath comes. Because there's wrath 
that's coming. If you read the book of Revelation, you'll find that there's wrath that's coming. Through Christ and His Gospel, we are delivered from that wrath. The only other way for anybody to be delivered from that wrath is through believing that. And these people were adamant about spreading the Gospel. Why? Because they knew Christ was coming soon. And so as we look at it here this morning, there's a lot of great example before us as we start our study of this, of this book. What are the pillars of the Christian life? We need to be imitators of His faith and love and hope and holiness so we can also be an example to those that are coming behind us of those same things. We'll grow in those things much quicker if we take things seriously, if we take our Christian life seriously. If we take seriously the Gospel, if we take seriously sin, if we take the Word of God seriously, if we take the return of Christ seriously, those are huge motivations and tools that God has put in our, in our use to be able to grow before God as we walk this Christian walk.